Um, what myself and Brian are going to do up until Easter is go through the, the Gospel of Luke, looking at some of the, the main incidents and some of the main characters in that Gospel. And what we are intending to do is just continually just build up this picture of who Jesus is. And I'd ask you to pray for us as we do that. And it's appropriate that we begin uh, the first two, that's this week and next week, looking at the coming of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you've found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is your word. And we thank you that it tells us the truth. We thank you it's not myth, and we thank you that it tells us of this incredible truth of God becoming man, God becoming a baby. And we pray that you would help us as we reflect upon this, that those of us who know this, and yet our very knowledge has become dull and cold, that we would be inspired again, and that those of us who don't know, who fear, who doubt, who don't know who Jesus is, that you would cause us to know him and to love him and serve him. In your name, amen. It's said of Martin Luther that he was obsessed with the incarnation. 
It was, um, what's the Christmas song? I wish it could be Christmas every day. We all start, you know, no, we don't. But uh, for Martin Luther, that was the case. He was just, the incarnation, it just kept blowing his mind away. And, and if you want to understand why, you need to read, there's a wee book by Athanasius called The Incarnati uh, on the Incarnation, which is wonderful. I, I, I honestly think that we as Christians um, sometimes presuppose too much. We think that we know and we don't know because we don't feel and we don't grasp and we don't understand it. When uh, I was talking with a couple of the guys about singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, someone said, why just sing it at Christmas? Why can't we sing it in May or June or whatever? And that's actually true. Why not? Because it does teach this, this wonderful truth. What we have before us here is the announcement of the most marvelous events that ever happened in this world, the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I did it again. I shouldn't have. I know. I switched on the radio this morning to listen to the service, and I said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, and then I heard, it's going to be on the announcement in Luke's gospel about the birth of Jesus to Mary, and I thought, okay, I'll see if I can pick up some tips. I really wish I hadn't. You're probably going to wish I hadn't, um, because it was awful, because you know what the message of the incarnation was, what it was summarized, I, I switched off halfway through, and then I... It's like temptation. I went back at the end. And the application at the end was simply this. That when everyone snowed in, the incarnation teaches us all to be our own miracle. And to go and help other people and so on. And I'm going, it is absolutely wonderful to go and help people. And that is absolutely the point. But if you think I am going to spend Christmas celebrating the fact that I can help other people that you haven't got, you, you haven't even begun to grasp. It was really, I found really, really quite astonishing. So what I, I want to do is I want to focus on Mary, um, not in the negative sense, there's a lot of wrong teaching about Mary, but sometimes I think in uh, Protestant churches, we've tended to overreact against some of that, and I want us to focus on Mary as the Blessed Mary because her story is absolutely amazing and her part, obviously her key role in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to look first of all at Mary as the mother of God. The Greek word is theotokos. All the early church fathers used it. And Mary in that sense absolutely is the mother of God. Who is she? Who was she? She lived in an obscure town called Galilee. As you see from her song, she was in a very humble position. She was not from Jerusalem. She was not from the capital. She was not the daughter of a king. She was not rich. She was almost certainly an older teenager at this point. So she is a young woman who is not known at all. And out of millions of women in the world at that time, God chose her to bring light and life into the world. Now, the point about God choosing her is not that he chose her because she was better than anyone else, not because she'd had an immaculate conception, not because of anything like that, but just because he did. He did. And uh, in that sense, that's why she recognizes as well just how blessed she is. Look at the description of Jesus in verse 31. 
You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The kingdoms of this world come and go, but the kingdom of God goes on forever, and this peasant girl is being told, that's your son. That's going to be your boy. It says that she was terrified. Uh, I am hardly surprised that that was the case, that she was just uh, afraid. And that's why the angel told her not to be afraid. I think she's blessed because of the way she conceived. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There's a, a, a reverence and an awe about how this happens. Now, for some bizarre reason, the whole concept of virgin birth is one that continually in the church and elsewhere, people ridicule or mock or they say it doesn't really matter. One of the more uh, well-known uh, emergent church guys is a guy called Rob Bell. And Rob Bell is an extremely good communicator and makes some really interesting videos but at times, uh, and more than once, sadly, he can be heretical. And one of his heresies was this. He said, theology, our understanding of God, is like a brick wall with different bricks in. If one of the bricks is the virgin birth and the virgin birth is removed, it doesn't make that big a difference. Now, Mark Driscoll put it perfectly in a way that only Mark Driscoll can. He said, to quote Rob Bell, what have we lost if we've lost the virgin birth? And Mark Driscoll said, Jesus Christ. That's what we've lost. And that's true. The virgin birth is, is, is vitally important because if you don't accept that, you're saying the Scripture is lying. You're also saying the early church got it completely wrong. You're also saying, I believe, you're saying God couldn't do that, which then means you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You're also changing who Jesus Christ is. And therefore, you are changing the whole idea of the cross and everything that's involved. So it is a key, it is a fundamental teaching about Jesus Christ. This was not just some ancient myth taken up by the early church. Firstly, and underlying it all, is trust in the Bible as the Word of God. That, for me, is actually the bottom line. The Word of God says it, I believe it. But there are underlying supporting arguments with that as well. For example, the reliability of Luke as a historian and also as a doctor. I kind of assume as a doctor he knew something about anatomy and how babies were born. If you go back to, into chapter 1, we read this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, says Luke, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The Gospel of Luke doesn't begin, once upon a time, there was a dragon. And you know, it doesn't, it's not written as myth. It's written as history. The reliability of the material that Luke wrote, you can go through Luke's gospel and you can go through the second part of it, which is the book of Acts. And over many, many hundreds of years, people have tried to dissect it and have tried to destroy it. And it's still there. 
There's not a single thing that Luke wrote that anyone has been able to prove as false. And I think also for me, a great underlying argument is this. It is the wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us why it had to be a virgin birth. It just tells us that it was. And that's enough. John chapter 1 verse 14, the Word was made flesh. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice you an offering you did not desire, but a body prepared you prepared for me. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now the astonishing thing and the thing that blew Martin Luther's mind and also Athanasius and so on is that the Son of God did come as a baby and was dependent as a baby and could have been killed as a baby and needed to have their nappy changed and needed to be breastfed and needed to be trained and experience pain and suffering. In the flesh, there are people who want to say, no, that didn't happen and he only became the Son of God when the Spirit came upon him at his baptism because they either have a very low view of the human body uh, or, or they think that it would be very, very demeaning for God to come. That's precisely the point. Philippians 2. He emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, who is involved in every aspect of our salvation. We honor him and worship him. Now, you have to think about when this book was written, because first of all, the Jewish readers who read this, they would mock, ridicule, and find it blasphemous, including Theophilus. Luke doesn't compromise. Theophilus, the name is, is, a, is a Jewish name. And he would have found the whole idea completely ridiculous and indeed even blasphemous. But Luke wrote what he wrote because it was the truth. You would not have written this if you were trying to invent a religion which would appeal to the culture of the time. I think the crux of the matter is in verse 37, the great principle, for nothing is impossible with God. The problem that people have with the virgin birth, it's not really a problem with the virgin birth, it's a problem with a God being able to do that. It's a problem with an almighty God. I think we often have questions and doubt. For a fallen person that is natural, our faith at the best is feeble, our knowledge is limited. That's important, actually. We do not believe because we know and understand everything. That's the absolute height of human arrogance. If you are to say, I'm only going to believe in a God whom I can understand, or I'm only going to believe in things that I can fit into the way that I think, that is actually the height of human arrogance. The best way to handle doubt is not necessarily to try and work through every issue so that you've got it all sorted out. The best way to handle doubt is to have a thorough conviction of the almighty power of God. So tonight is meant to be a really clear night. Go out and look at the stars. Remember that God created each one. He who called the starry hosts each by name. Why should it be considered impossible that he should create a child in the womb in this special way? It's not impossible at all. It is our view of God that is the most important thing. And I think when we uh, consider the birth of Jesus, that can help us 
in a lot of ways. I think also that there's something even more amazing. And it's in Luke 11. If you look at Luke 11, verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Isn't that true? Blessed is... Jesus replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, you just have to back off from this a little, a minute and think. Let me put it this way. Imagine if you were Mary... Imagine if all this happened to you. Imagine if, as a young woman, you were pregnant and you were told and you knew that your Savior, the Son of God, the Most High God, was your child and that you were blessed in that way. What an extraordinary blessing. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Look at what Jesus says. He says... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So you're not Mary, but as you're hearing the word of God just now, you have a greater blessing even than Mary had. That's an extraordinary statement. Blessed are those who hear and keep God's word. She was blessed also because she believed what God said to her. Look at verse 45. She says this. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now, she went through various phases, and I think for all of us, we can understand that, and we may go through similar things ourselves on lesser occasions. She was greatly troubled, verse 29. Wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Was she going mad? What was happening? She questioned, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's not wrong to question. But verse 38, she was humble. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Questioning without humility is stupidity. It's arrogance. Questioning with humility and with trust is very different. And in verse 45, she believed. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. It was a belief that cost her, cost her her reputation. It was a belief that would cost her because of the trials that would face her ahead. She went immediately to Elizabeth before she had begun to show she was pregnant. Who would have believed her then? Beside which, what a tremendous emotional, spiritual, and psychological strain to be carrying the Son of God in your womb. Um, Sometimes, you know, you stand up as a male preacher and you have lots of advantages. Uh, Sometimes you have disadvantages. Uh, I am not even going to pretend for a moment I have any idea what it's like to be pregnant. Uh, And I am not one of these new men who kind of goes, I'm with you in every moment, you know, and I feel your pain and all that kind of stuff. Because anyone who says that deserves a good slap from there because it's it's just not true. I, I have no idea. You know, Sometimes in our society, people, let me just do the male-female thing for a minute. Sometimes people go, oh, we're, you know, a, a male-dominated society and, and paternalistic, etc., etc. Though according to the Times last week, apparently men are now becoming redundant. And it's all very female and we're the, the, the lower gender and everything like that. I kind of always figured that there were differences between men and women. And that these were pretty major differences. And it wasn't a question of equality. It was a question of difference of roles. And one thing that a man certainly will never, ever understand is what it's like to carry a child and 
what it's like to be uh, involved uh, with that, the bond and everything that's there. And Mary, who could she go to? She went to her cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth greeted her and, and had this extraordinary scene where John the Baptist hears Mary's voice and leaps for joy in the womb. Again, what an extraordinary picture. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth herself had a special revelation of God, had an amazing confession. Look at verse 43. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you realize how long it took the male disciples to come to the understanding that Jesus was God? And Mary and Elizabeth got it. They got it pretty well from the beginning. There's a sharing in blessing there. I think that we need to share the blessings of those who believe and pray that our, friend, our faith would be strengthened. And I think if you're going to take an example of this, we should be willing to go anywhere, do anything, and be anything as long as God's word is plain and the path of duty is plain as long as we follow what God says. Blessed are those who hear and keep God's word. But she's also blessed in this because she prays God. Verses 46 onward, the Magnificat. The Church of England, in its more formal aspects, has this song at every evening service. It is a formal song. It is a liturgical song. And one of the arguments against it is to say, how could a peasant woman compose such a song? Lots of problems with that argument. One being it's usually made by people who think that they are superior people. I think... Understanding how Mary could compose this song is fairly straightforward, given that it's done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But also, every single line of this song is from the Old Testament. This young woman had a good grasp and a good knowledge of Scripture, especially the Psalms and especially the book of Isaiah. She knew the promises of the Old Testament, especially the promise to Abraham. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so she's able to exalt and to praise God because she knows God's Word. That's what we need to do. We learn God's Word so that uh, one of the advantages is we know how to praise Him properly. She praises God with great joy. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's an exultant, overwhelming joy. She praises God because she's humble and she knows that she's nothing compared with Him. What's really interesting is that not once in this song does she go on about being the mother of God. All generations will call her blessed, that's true. But the emphasis is on what God has done and not on herself. She doesn't mention herself again. She sees herself in context. It's all about the greatness of Jesus Christ. If you see Mary as some extraordinary person, some woman who's completely different, some woman who you can go to because uh, she'll be able to have a word with Jesus for you, you haven't grasped who Mary is and you haven't grasped the sheer wonder of the incarnation. The point about Mary is she's ordinary. And God comes to her in an extraordinary way and this extraordinary thing happens. But she's ordinary and she needs salvation. Again, sometimes... You'll get uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, in, in some, not all, but some will teach that Mary was sinless. Well, if she was sinless, why did she need a Savior? Mary, of course, was sinful the same as the rest of us. She sees herself in context. 
And she praises God because she's poor and she knows that he will bring justice. Look at verse 52. He's brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. We, um, in our fellowship group, I don't know if any of you have got onto this, but we've had some interesting discussions uh, when we've been discussing money. And I missed the one where the theme was, is it right for a Christian to own a Porsche? So I thought I'd go along and improve the level of discussion. And the last one I was at, somehow we managed to get on, is it right for a Christian to go parachuting as a hobby? So from Porsches to parachutes, um, if you really want to help our group, you know, maybe you can advise us on that. But we were wrestling with and struggling with this whole thing as regards money and what we do with money and what's involved. And I've been thinking about this a lot and looking at this. And here's Mary exulting in Jesus being born. And she's praising Jesus and she's praising God because he lifts up the poor and he sends the rich away empty. I think it is appalling that we live in a culture where we can find billions to bail out banks who continue then to pay huge bonuses to people whilst you'll find that some of the very poorest are excluded from any bailouts or any help. Now, I'm not, I was going to say I'm not trying to make a political point. Well, actually, I am in this sense just against injustice. I don't care the party politics. And I know that all we've, the arguments about welfare state, and I, you know, there's a lot of that you could agree with, but there's just something wrong in a world where you can have people who can afford to spend because they get a million pound bonus at Christmas. They can afford to buy an extra Porsche or an extra just different things, and in the very same city, there are those who are in grave danger of of freezing to death. The renewal promised in Mary's song in the Magnificat involves the overturning of the principles and the rulers of this world. She praises God because she knows that this is how he acted in the past, how he acts in the present, and how he will continue to act in the future. The message of Christmas is about the message of Jesus. But you see, you get two problems in that because you do get people, as I listened to this morning, who on the one hand want to say, well, Christmas is about teaching us to share. And on the other hand, you get people say, well, it's really nothing to do with that. Christmas is about God becoming man. And you kind of want to scream at both because the first one, you have to say, how? How? How do we share? What's our motivation? What's involved? How do we change? And the second one, you want to say, God became man, so what? Is it just so that we can tick it off in a doctrinal box? No, it's not. I um, get the IVP advent calendar, and it gets sent to me, and the one for yesterday, or I think it was actually for Friday, was absolutely brilliant. I wanted to share it with you because I think it summarizes this. What can I give him? This is what it said. A church that grasps the gospel and is willing to be radical will be a church that stands out. People asking, what can I give rather than what can I get, will make decisions on a completely different basis from that of the world. 
It might, for example, be a church whose members reduce their working hours to become more involved in the work of the fellowship or to spend time with their families. It will certainly contain people who remain in their jobs, but who, as they climb the career ladder, will look increasingly different from their peers. As your salary increases and the amount you give away increases too, so the difference in lifestyle between you and your peers will grow, noticeably so. Remember the biblical principle, be like your heavenly father, generous. And then we get this story of John Wesley, whose motto was, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And this is a, a famous story, but I think, it, it's, I, I think it's a wonderful principle. And it would have helped us in our discussion the other time at our fellowship group. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so he'd have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was £30 and his living expenses £28, so he had £2 to give away. The next year his income doubled, but he still lived on £28 and gave £32 away. In the third year, his income jumped to £90. Again, he lived on £28, giving away £62. The fourth year, he made £120, lived on £28, and gave £92 to the poor. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian is, Christian standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. One year, his income was slightly over £1,400. He gave away all but £30. Now, I tell you this, there are aspects of Wesley's theology I would look at and say, nah. But his practice, I think, was wonderful. And the IVP Advent Calendar goes on to say this. Now, imagine a whole congregation living like that. Imagine the whole church in the West living like that. The fact that it's so hard to imagine tells us just how far from that scenario we are at the moment. Cicero said that gratitude is the mother of all virtues. He was right. Our thanks to God will drive us to gracious giving. You see, we talk about being generous at Christmas, being generous at other times. The spirit of generosity comes from the spirit of thankfulness, and it, it, it comes from the recognition of who God is. Instead of waking up every day discouraged and depressed, perhaps we should wake up thankful for all that the Lord has given to us. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Our standard of giving, our standard of service. As Paul teaches in Philippians 2, go home and read the whole of Philippians 2. As Paul teaches in Philippians 2, is to emulate Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, made himself of no reputation, but became a servant became obedient unto death. When we grasp what the incarnation is, then instead of serving resentfully, we serve cheerfully and joyfully. Instead of having to be nagged into giving, we give with grateful and thankful hearts. That's why the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord doesn't need our money, and he doesn't want it, except as an act of worship from a grateful and thankful heart. At this time of year, I hope that we are thankful for many things. There are people for whom Christmas and New Year are particularly sad occasions because of they remember the loss of loved ones, they remember pain and sorrow in their own lives. But whoever we are, if we follow and know Jesus Christ, we should be thankful for the greatest gift of all. 
to learn to trust Him and to trust His promise. Carl Truman wrote a, a really excellent article on this, and I want to finish with this quote from Carl Truman. And for those of you who are not Christians, yes, I know that for some people the idea of being saved by a tiny baby is, is ludicrous. But look at these words. If we are to be rescued and redeemed, we want it to be on our terms by a Redeemer worthy of us, a great and mighty one, powerful in word and deed, one who strikes instant fear and commands immediate respect. It is an insult to us that we should be rescued by one weaker than ourselves, and yet that is the glory of the gospel. Of course, as Paul points out, this gospel foolishness accumulates in the cross on Calvary, but it is foreshadowed in the absurdity of the manger. God needs no advice from us. He does not pander to our expectations. The eternal explodes into time, not with a bang, but with the whimper of a newborn infant. It has been said that Luther was mesmerized by the fact of the incarnation. At this season of the year, may we too be similarly entranced by the mighty and terrifying power of the helpless and vulnerable infant.